This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander. With seating for up to eight passengers and available panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with the whole family. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate, but not with 80 Acres Farms? Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled, going from farm to store in days, not weeks. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. This is an iHeart original. Newgate Jail was built into the old Roman walls that had once bounded the city of London. It had been a fixture of the landscape since 1188, and the intervening years hadn't done much to change its essential nature. Newgate was a horrible, horrible place full of desperation, damp, and disease. It was home to highwaymen and murderers, rapists and thieves, as well as petty criminals, pickpockets, and political activists who'd fallen afoul of the establishment. Men, women, and children were crowded into the same wards, and there was no distinction between crimes. When William Challoner shuffled into Newgate in August 1697, heavy iron shackles at his ankles and wrists, it was at least his third stay in London's most notorious prison. And by now, he knew his way around. Challoner's first objective would have been to get some coin, some real, actual coin, into the hands of the jailer to get those shackles off. Easy enough. Newgate was so corrupt that the guards would allow robbers out at night to go thieving in exchange for a cut of the profits. Challoner's next job would have been to sort out the basic necessities. Newgate was said to be so filthy, so disgusting, that the floors were carpeted in lice and bedbugs. An open sewer flowed through the middle of it, and people sometimes tried to escape that way. But not everyone survived. Typhus was so endemic that it was called jail fever. In the main cells, there were no beds, just a bit of bare board or straw to sleep on. The water was tainted, the food was spoiled, and everywhere was cold, dark and airless. Challoner would have spent some more coin to procure real bedding and better food, and maybe even some wine or beer. He might have even gotten a cell to himself, depending on how much of his ill-gotten coin he wanted to part with. 
That sorted, his next step was obvious. Sit down and figure out exactly what kind of mess he was in Hmm. and how to get out of it. There would be a trial soon, maybe in a few months' time, and Chaloner, of course, had no defense attorney. No one did. He knew the warden's case rested on the testimony of Thomas Holloway. And though Holloway was his friend, his longtime accomplice, Chaloner knew that loyalty only went so far. Certainly Chaloner was loyal to no one but himself. But Chaloner also knew that beyond Holloway's testimony, the evidence Newton had on him was thin. Chaloner's first move was to start talking in the hopes of earning an out the same way most other people did, informing. He accused Aubrey Price of several criminal acts, counterfeiting among them. Price had been part of that convoluted plan that led to Chaloner's arrest. But the problem was, Aubrey Price was already in prison. A man of, quote, good parentage, but poor morals, evidently. He was later executed for forging banknotes, which, by 1697, was a capital offense. So that didn't work. But Chaloner had another plan. One that involved removing Thomas Holloway from the picture. For iHeartRadio, I'm Linda Rodriguez-McRobbie, and this is Newton's Law, an iHeart original podcast. Episode 6, Quicksilver. While Chaloner was trying to figure a way out of his current jam, Newton was just a three-mile walk away through London's crooked, smoky, filthy streets. He now lived in Westminster, much quieter, less smelly than his home at the Mint had been. He sat alone, thinking. Newton could have been reviewing all the depositions, all the information he'd collected since he'd first gotten wind of Chaloner's Egham operation. He'd have been looking for something, anything that would give him leverage. If Chaloner knew that Newton's case against him was thin, then Newton certainly did too. Or maybe his mind drifted a bit. He might have been thinking about his work on optics, for example, experiments and research that had stalled somewhat since he arrived in London. He might have been thinking about his theological studies, ideas that sometimes took him to the brink and beyond of heresy. Or he might have been thinking about how he, Isaac Newton, born on a Lincolnshire farm to rise to scholarly fame, had gotten here, sitting in his London study, struggling with a different kind of problem. How to nail down a slippery criminal mastermind. Newton was no stranger to introspection. As a teenager and in his first years at Cambridge, he kept a ledger of his, quote, sins. Making pies on Sunday night. Missing chapel. 
twisting a cord on Sunday morning. Using Wilford's towel to spare my own, wishing death and hoping it to some, striking many. Having unclean thoughts, words and actions and dreams. Also on the list, trying to spend a bronze and therefore counterfeit groat, which is, well, ironic. Newton's childhood and adolescence hadn't been exactly pleasant. His father was a relatively well-off farmer who died before Newton was born. His mother remarried when little Isaac was just about three years old. Her new husband was more than twice her age, a widower, and as part of their marriage contract, she was meant to move in with him, alone. Little Isaac was to be left in the care of his grandparents at the farmhouse where he was born. When her second husband died eight years later, his mother returned with three smaller children in tow. Biographers have suggested that this early perceived rejection by his mother left Isaac Newton with a few issues. Punching my sister, robbing my mother's box of plums and sugar, threatening my father and mother to burn them and the house over them, peevishness with my mother, with my sister. Newton's brilliance carried him into university. His years in academia were characterized by intense study and also by a lack of connection with other people. During his Cambridge years, he rarely left his rooms at the college, and when he did, he was usually unkempt with his hair uncombed, and he tended to draw mathematical equations in the dust by the river Cam, that sort of thing. Newton wasn't exactly happy in his solitude, but neither did he particularly enjoy the company of other people. For I see not what there is desirable in public esteem were I able to acquire and maintain it. It would perhaps increase my acquaintance, the thing which I chiefly study to decline. Still, Newton could only stand the intellectual isolation for so long. Newton had been restless in his last few years at Trinity College, around the time that he was looking for another job and a way out of Cambridge. But that wasn't the only explanation for his abrupt departure from academic life for London and the Mint. In the years before he left, Newton was behaving erratically. I am extremely troubled at the embroilment I am in. I have neither ate nor slept well this twelve month nor have my former consistency of mind. Newton confessed this to his friend, the ubiquitous Samuel Pepys, in a letter from 1693. Not sleeping or eating is a bad sign, even from Newton, who tended to be too distracted by work to do either consistently. But there was more. I must withdraw from your acquaintance and see neither you nor the rest of my friends anymore, if I may leave them quietly. Newton did have a reputation for being quick to lose people if they offended him. He once ditched a friend for telling a dirty joke about a nun, even though he definitely wasn't Catholic and didn't seem to have any particular respect for nuns. And Newton could be, for sure, petty and vindictive. He fought with many of the leading scientists of the day, in some cases physically. In the 1690s, Newton visited John Flamsteed, the first astronomer royal, out at the Royal Observatory in Greenwich. And the two got into an actual wrestling match over one of Flamsteed's instruments. Flamsteed says that Newton called him all the ill names that he could think of. Puppy was the most innocent of them. But Newton's declaration that he intended to sever ties with Pepys and others was strange. 
worrying. Just three days after his letter to Pepys, Newton wrote to philosopher John Locke, one of his closest allies. Being off opinion that you endeavoured to embroil me with women and by other means, I was so affected with it that when one told me you were sickly and would not live, I answered, "'Twere better if you were dead." Locke's reply was graceful and kind, and he clearly forgave Newton. But Newton's response to that was, if anything, more worrying. Sir, the last winter, by sleeping too often by my fire, I got an ill habit of sleeping, and a distemper, which this summer has been epidemical, put me farther out of order, so that when I wrote to you, I had not slept an hour and night for a fortnight together, and for five days together, not a wink. I remember I wrote to you, but what I said of your book, I remember not. Newton's letters worried Pepys so much that Pepys wrote to another Cambridge academic, John Millington. I had lately received a letter from him, so surprising to me for the inconsistency of every part of it, as to be put into great disorder by it for the concernment I have for him. I mean a discomposure in head, or mind, or both. Pepys asked Millington to check in on Newton, discreetly. It wouldn't do anyone any good, least of all Newton, to have people start suspecting that the great genius of Trinity was having a breakdown. For I own too great an esteem for Mr. Newton as for a public good. To be able to let any doubt in me of this kind concerning him lie a moment uncleared, where I can have any hopes of helping it. Newton's, quote, frenzied state and the flurry of paranoid letters coming from him prompted all kinds of schadenfreude as well as real concern from the gossipy greats at the time. Dutch physicist Christian Huygens heard it from his friends in England. He told mathematician and philosopher Gottfried Wilhelm von Leibniz, who spread it around to his circle. By the time Newton's frenzy made it back to England via German philosopher Johann Christoph Sturm to a Dr. Wallace, Newton had been, quote, reduced to very ill circumstances by a, quote, disturbance of mind caused by a supposed fire that destroyed his lab, his home, and all of his worldly possessions. It was like the longest game of telephone ever. Have you heard of Newton's frenzied state? I hear that Newton fancies pace. I'm concerned about Newton's dancy waist. Okay, so there hadn't been a lab-destroying fire. And Newton, unlike many other educated people in his time, didn't believe that his periods of frenzy were the product of the influence of the devil or evil spirits. But there was definitely something going on in Newton's head. Hey guys, it's Steve Cavino from Cavino and Rich here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new Toyota truck like a rugged half-ton Tundra. Workhorse by nature, powerhouse by design, the Tundra combines raw capability with premium comfort and advanced tech to fuel your wildest adventures. And with the available iForce Max Hybrid powertrain, you can take electrifying horsepower farther than ever before. Or check out the fully redesigned Tacoma delivering trail-dominating power and captivating style. The new Tacoma was born to make your off-roading dreams come true. And with the new available tech, this legendary truck is getting even better. When you buy a Toyota truck, you buy Toyota Dependability. 
meaning your trunk will hold this value long into the future. So visit your local Toyota dealer. Check out the amazing national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Farm to store in days, not weeks. That's 80 Acres Farms. Did you know most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate? But not 80 Acres Farms. Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's zero need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls, offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Act 2. The Alchemist. Newton had, according to some sources, struggled with depression at several points in his life, times when he'd retreat to his inner world and cut off what few ties he had with friends and fellow academics. But this particular episode seemed so much more profound and incomprehensible to his worried friends. Something was going on, and it's possible that something was mercury poisoning. Newton had for years, been a semi-secret practicing alchemist. Alchemy was an ancient science with roots in Eastern cultures. It was largely concerned with pulling substances apart and trying to put them back together in more valuable ways. For example, transforming lead into gold. In the 17th century, alchemy was branching in two directions. There was the branch that would eventually become what we'd consider chemistry today, and the branch that stuck with the more metaphysical stuff. That kind of alchemy was regarded as more or less madness. Newton was sort of between the two branches. He was, as John Maynard Keynes later wrote, the last of the magicians, but he wasn't interested in power or living forever. Rather, Newton was trying to find God in his work, all of his work, he had written the Principia, he said, not with a design of bidding, bidding defiance, defiance to, the, to creator. the Creator, but to enforce and demonstrate the power and superintendency of a supreme being. Many of Newton's meticulous notes on his alchemical experiments survive. One million handwritten words describing his interpretations of scripture, of the essences of elements, the movements of the heavens, arcane potions meant to prolong life. But Newton's search for divinity through experimentation also meant messing about with some fairly toxic substances, like mercury. Mercury is an element, number 80 on the periodic table, although the periodic table wouldn't actually be created for another 170 years. It's the only metallic element that's a liquid at room temperature, giving it the historic and popular name Quicksilver. If you've ever accidentally cracked open a thermometer, young people, thermometers used to have mercury inside them, true story, 
you probably remember the way that the silvery liquid coalesced into little blobs, like the bad guy in Terminator 2. For 18 years, Newton carried out hundreds of experiments involving all kinds of metals, gold, silver, lead, and mercury. He would often heat things up and then intentionally breathe in their fumes or even taste the results once they cooled. When he was on an experimental bender, he tended to sleep in his laboratory by the fire while his experiments bubbled merrily away, releasing fumes into the air. Newton used Quicksilver so much in his experiments that he once joked, quite possibly his only joke ever, that his hair had turned prematurely silver because of it. But mercury is toxic, hence why thermometers aren't made with mercury anymore. Exposure to mercury can lead to mercury poisoning. The mercury builds up in your system over time, eventually resulting in serious neurological issues. You can suffer ill effects from ingesting mercury, of course, although 19th century doctors used to prescribe it as a laxative because it's so dense it just moves right through you. But it's most damaging when it's inhaled in vapor form, moving quickly from the lungs into the blood into the brain. The symptoms of mercury poisoning we know now include irritability, depression, anxiety, problems with memory. I remember I wrote to you, but what I said of your book, I remember not. Insomnia. I had not slept an hour a night for a fortnight together. And quote, pathological shyness. I must withdraw from your acquaintance. Researchers are divided on the impact of mercury on Newton's health, certainly. And it's never a really good idea to diagnose the physical and mental problems of someone who died nearly 300 years ago. But if we're looking for a suspect in the, quote, madness of Isaac Newton, mercury poisoning seems like a prime one. But that wasn't all that was going on in Newton's life right now. His mind was troubled, and so was his heart. Newton had never married or seemed to show the slightest romantic interest in anyone at all. But it's possible that in 1693, Newton was dealing with a romance, or at least a very strong emotional attachment, that ended badly. A few years earlier, Newton had begun paying a lot of attention to a young Swiss mathematician and philosopher called Nicolas Fatio de Julier. Newton wrote to Fatio with a kind of warmth that he rarely showed in letters to other people, not even to his own relatives. And Fatio seemed to return his regard. I could wish, sir, to live all my life or the greatest part of it with you, if it was possible. When Newton found out that Fatio was desperately ill in September 1692, he was truly distraught. Ah, last night received your letter, with which how much I was affected I cannot express. Pray procure the advice and assistance of physician before it is too late, and if you want any money, I will supply you. With my prayers for your recovery, I rest. He signed it. Your most affectionate and faithful friend to serve you. Newton tried to send presents, medical remedies, even money, but Fatio didn't take them. In February 1693, Newton even suggested that Fatio come live with him in Cambridge so that Newton could take care of him. Fatio refused, saying he didn't want to be a burden. And then, Fatio seemed to end it. Fatio wrote Newton to say that he'd made a new friend in London, a good and upright man. Newton rushed to London, but 
What happened there, we can only guess. After that, letters between the two largely ceased. It's possible that Newton was in love with Fatio, although there was no indication that this relationship was ever physical or sexual. A much older Newton later told a relative that he had, quote, never violated chastity with anyone, ever. The way to chastity is not to struggle with incontinent thoughts, but to avert the thoughts by some employment or by reading or by conversation or by meditating on other things. But whatever his attachment to Fatio, it appeared to be one of the very few deep relationships Newton had ever been able to form with another human being. And its loss would have cut him to the bone. Later in 1693, John Millington, Newton's Cambridge colleague, paid Newton a visit at Pepys's request. Millington reported back to Pepys that Newton seemed fine. At least, Newton still seemed to have his intellect. He is now very well. And though I fear he is under some small degree of melancholy, yet I think there is no reason to suspect it hath at all touched his understanding. And I hope it never will. But Millington's response contained another clue as to what was grieving Newton. Millington said that it was a sign, not a good one, it seemed, of how much the love of learning and the honor of the nation was looked after. When such a person as Mr. Newton lies so neglected by those in power. Newton was feeling overlooked, less relevant. Though the publication of Principia had been a triumph, that was now behind him. And his work following Principia wasn't a failure by any means, but he was conscious that it wasn't, you know, explaining the universe. At the same time, his friends, people like Pepys and Locke, had long been trying to find him work outside of Cambridge, with little success. What it all added up to was a crisis. Dr. Patricia Farah. He certainly does seem to have had some sort of breakdown. I imagine life was a bit difficult for him. He perhaps wasn't the easiest man in the world to get on with. Perhaps he was worried about his failing mathematical powers. That's something that a lot of mathematicians talk about when they get to the age of about 40 or 50, that they're past their creative best. Uh, I don't think there's any single reason, and I'm not sure we even really know exactly why. So Newton's period of disordered mind could have been a lifelong struggle with depression compounded by mercury poisoning. Or it could have been a love affair gone south. Or it could have just been a regular old midlife crisis. He was in his early 50s after all, and he'd been trying for years to get out of Cambridge. Or it could have been all of the above. But whatever it was, Newton needed a new purpose. Finding counterfeiters and sending them to the gallows? Well, maybe that was it. What up, everyone? It's Lunchbox from the Bobby Bone Show, and I'm here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car, like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive. You can count on your new Camry to get you anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. 
Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate, but not with 80 Acres Farms? Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled, going from farm to store in days, not weeks. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Act 3. No face, no case. In 1699, Anne Pillsbury, a poor woman who lived in Westminster, went to a bakery with her young daughter to buy food. And I need a bread, please. And, uh, and ate me a cheese, sir. The shop, however, was run by an informant of Newton's. What's this then, my girl? And he believed that the sixpence that she tried to pay with was fake. Hmm? Do you consider me a fool? This is not legitimate coin of the crown. The informant searched her right there in the shop, finding a good sixpence between her bodice and stomach. Evidence that she knew she'd been passing bad coin as well as evidence that this shop owner wasn't at all concerned about being brought up on sexual assault charges or humiliating poor Anne. He then brought her to Newton himself. Newton ordered her and her daughter searched again. Well, search again? Both of them? This time finding more counterfeit coins wrapped in paper and hidden in the child's clothing. You dare embroil the girl in your petty scheme. Please, sir, the bad sixpence was off a person what sells linen cloth in the streets. They made it, and others. There's no word on what happened to Anne and her daughter next, but it's possible, and I really hope this was the case, that she became another of Newton's informants, rather than being packed off to Newgate. Patricia Farah again. I mean, these people who were being persecuted as criminals were often living on the edge of poverty. They were very ignorant. Uh, they hadn't got any work. And although there were some master criminals like Chaloner who managed to become quite rich, a, lo- a lot of the petty theft going on was just so that people could survive. Newton was not moved by the plight of the people he squeezed for information or even sent to the gallows. And his industriousness in pursuing counterfeiters and clippers might have been fueled or at least aided by this darker side of his personality. But as it turns out, it was precisely this unforgiving character combined with his laser-like focus that made him so good at being a cop. And in William Chaloner, Newton had found his equal and opposite, so to speak. 
Where Challoner was garrulous, charming, and friendly, Newton was terse, introspective, quick to anger. Where Challoner seemed to sow anarchy, Newton wanted order. He wanted to use his scientific abilities to fix things. Where Challoner was happy to twist and bend the law to break it, Newton was devoted to the oath he took to protect the mint and its machines. Tom Levinson, MIT science writer and author of Newton and the Counterfeiter. Yes, you really see him, I think, in this as, as, as one three-dimensional person rather than as Newton the scientist, Newton the mathematician, Newton the magician, whatever it may be. Um, because you really see the two, to me, dominant characteristics of Newton's mind at play in his confrontation with Challoner. Um, on the one hand, he's just really smart. He has a disciplined mind. He defines problems, all that kind of stuff that you think of as Newton, the, the great mind that, that we know him as. But I think you also see something that is often underestimated in the lives of great scientists. They are persistent and focused in a way that most other people are not. They have a power of concentration combined with stamina that's really distinctive. And Newton stayed with problems over months and years. And with Challoner, Challoner was a problem. In March 1698, Newton received a pleading letter from Thomas Carter, one of Challoner's colleagues, who was then languishing in Newgate Jail. Carter promised all kinds of information. I shall have the irons put on me tomorrow, if your worship not order the contrary. Being clapped in irons sounds like something that happened to pirates, because it was. But it was also extremely painful. Heavy iron shackles were secured around the prisoner's ankles, leaving bruises, broken skin, sores. It sounds a lot like torture. Newton was undoubtedly willing to let people be hurt in his pursuit of justice. He once said of a counterfeiter in prison, Better to let him suffer. But to be fair, there's not a lot of evidence that Newton was torturing people to get his information. That reference is the only one that survives, although he did burn much of his records concerning counterfeiters. The idea of Newton as this aggressive, sadistic inquisitor comes in part from a biography of him written by Frank Manuel in 1968 that read his role as warden through a Jungian psychoanalytical lens. Manuel saw Newton's evident zeal for the job as working out his anger with his deceased stepfather on a socially acceptable object, the treasonous coiner. That's probably not really merited at all. Manuel suggested that Newton was unusual in his passion, but the fact was, not a day went by in the late 1690s that the government wasn't talking about counterfeiters in some way. Newton's interest wasn't excessive, nor were his methods of getting information. The pressure Newton applied was already there. Many of his informants were already facing the gallows, and irons were part of the prison toolkit. Newton's attitude was shared by his contemporaries. But where Newton did differ was in just how dogged, thorough, and analytical his pursuit of coiners was, and just how much they hated him for it. Tom Levinson again. Challoner, like many others, really underestimated Isaac Newton. When he came to London, they would have seen this Cambridge professor, this mathematician, this person whose mind was in the stars, who wouldn't stand a chance, wouldn't last a week 
in the rough and tumble real world of you know London in all its bustle and joyous crime and exuberance and and misery. Well, they were wrong. Newton did just fine. He had no problem dealing with the real world, and I think Challoner was was really unprepared to confront somebody who wasn't the sort of airy fairy boffin that he may have imagined he was facing. Newton, so far, had proven a lot tougher, a lot more ruthless, a lot more tenacious than Challoner had imagined. But that didn't mean that Challoner was done. Thomas Holloway was out of jail. He was to be Newton's star witness in just a few weeks, whenever the next sessions of trials were to be held. He sat in a quiet corner of the Bolt and Tun Inn on Fleet Street, just around the corner from where William Challoner sat in his Newgate cell. He waited, tankered a veil in front of him, for a man called Michael Gillingham. Gillingham was a longtime associate of Challoner's. He was a useful publican who kept an alehouse by Charing Cross Road and who did jobs for local criminals. He'd even done a bit of counterfeiting himself, the rumors said. Challoner had passed word to Gillingham, probably through one of Newgate's notoriously corruptible jailers, to find Holloway and get him out of the picture. No, he wasn't going to have him killed. Challoner's a con man. He's not a murderer. This isn't going to turn into that kind of podcast. What Challoner wanted was for Holloway and his family, including his wife, Elizabeth, and their five children, plus their maidservant, to just disappear for a while. He offered Holloway, through Gillingham, 20 pounds to make a run for Scotland. Despite sharing a monarch, England and Scotland were separate kingdoms still. So making a run for Scotland meant that English law couldn't touch him there. Though Challoner was offering a fairly substantial sum of money, fairly substantial, about 4,000 pounds today, enough to buy then like three horses or pay for the Holloway's expenses for a bit, Holloway didn't take it at first. Maybe he liked having a bit of power over Challoner. Maybe he was holding out for a bit more. Maybe he just didn't want to leave the city he'd called home for an uncertain journey north. Maybe he was worried about his family. Challoner, however, wasn't a man to be trifled with. He was playing nice now, offering money, but he could just as easily flip the script, turn informant on Holloway. Holloway's wife, Elizabeth, she was also embroiled in this too. She'd been Challoner's utterer. She'd passed fake coins into circulation. And it's not like Challoner hadn't snitched people right into the gallows before, wasn't trying to do so right now with Aubrey Price. A few weeks went by and the trial was getting closer and closer. In mid-October, Holloway finally agreed, but he refused to make a promise until he and Gillingham were in front of a man called Henry Saunders. Holloway evidently trusted Saunders and wanted to make sure that there were witnesses to the deal he was making with Gillingham and Challoner. Holloway, Gillingham, and Saunders met at yet another pub, the Turk's Head in Wapping near the river. This was where condemned men about to hang at execution docks, so like buccaneers and pirates and smugglers and mutineers, would have their last pint. At the Turk's Head, Holloway went over the plan. Gillingham would take care of the kids and the maidservant for a few weeks while Holloway and his wife got on some horses and rode north. He'd send the children and the maid up the coast by boat, paid for, of course, by William Challoner. 
Gillingham paid Holloway part up front. And then a few days later, Gillingham and Saunders escorted Holloway and his wife to the livery where they collected their horses, mounted up, and left town. Gillingham and Saunders went to Newgate that day to tell Chaloner the news. Chaloner then seemed to be very joyful and said a fart for the world. Chaloner declaring a fart for the world was actually in the deposition of Saunders that Newton took. As in, the Saunders person told Newton directly that Chaloner said, quote, a fart for the world. (laughs) I don't even know what that means. The Holloways were now out of the picture, and Newton's most important witness was gone. His two other witnesses recanted, although exactly how Chaloner threatened or bought them off is unclear. Tom Levinson. Uh, you know, it was a classic sort of mafia, you know, what, what we now think of as mafia-organized crime techniques of, of just systematically dismantling the case that's about to be presented against you until there was nothing left. And, and that's what happened to Newton. He had to, you know, the case just fell apart. Uh, he never went to trial. By late October, Newton's case against Chaloner had crumbled. The judge overseeing the case dismissed the charges. Newton was fuming. He knew it was a weak case from the start, but he'd been pressured by the Lord's justices to pursue it. And Newton hated losing, hated it. If you got on the wrong side of Newton, it took heroic efforts to sort of heal the breach, and and, and and most often people didn't. Uh, and so Chaloner had come along, this, you know, this criminal, this blackguard, um, this, this, you know, annoying horsefly nipping at, at Newton's flanks. In November 1697, that annoying horsefly buzzed out of Newgate Jail, a mostly free man. Now, we know that Chaloner is not a man content to slink away and feel lucky to have escaped this brush with the law in certain death. We also know that seven weeks in jail, paying jailers for basic necessities, paying off the witnesses against him, had left Chaloner pretty much broke. He needed money. But luckily, he had a plan. Or three. Coming up on Newton's Law. Ask no questions. But if you knew who my friend was, you'd allow he was as great a master as Chaloner. In June or July last, Mr Chaloner and Mr Davis came to my mistress's lodging. And Mr Chaloner locked himself in a room upstairs. Well, I was curious, so, well, I looked through the keyhole. Newton's Law is a production of iHeartRadio. It's written and hosted by me, Linda Rodriguez-McRobbie. Our senior producer is Ryan Murdoch. Our producer is Emily Marinoff. Our executive producer is Jason English. Original music by Elise McCoy, with editing help from Mary Dew. Sound design and mixing by Jeremy Thal. Research and fact-checking by me and Jocelyn Sears. Voice acting by Keith Fleming, Robbie Jack, Ruthie Stevens, and Paul Tinto. Special thanks to Dr. Patricia Farah and Tom Levinson. Our show logo is designed by Lucy Quintanilla. Thanks for listening.
This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a Corolla built just for you. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Farm to store in days, not weeks. That's 80 Acres Farms. Did you know most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate? But not 80 Acres Farms. Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's zero need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity.